This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In the Gospel of Luke, we have a unique parable about a rich man who ignores a poor man named Lazarus, despite that said poor man being left at the gate of his household, relying on crumbs and covered in sores. There are several interesting details about this particular parable that make it stand out among the rest. The most obvious is that it is the only one in which the characters are given clearly identifiable names, and thus functions, corresponding to existing characters in the Old Testament. I'm refraining from saying their names are proper nouns, since that concept is foreign to scripture. Every name has a meaning, every name is functional, and it just so happens that there are two identifiable Hebraic names. The rich man is simply Oplusios, but the characters of Lazarus and Abraham correspond directly to Old Testament characters. Starting with Lazarus, it is important to note that this is a Hellenized rendering of the original Hebrew Eleazar. There are several characters in the scriptural corpus bearing this name. Uh, probably the most famous occurrence is that of Aaron's son in the book of Exodus. This name means God helps. There is a variant on this name with the possessive, which is Eliezer. In Hebrew, this would be rendered not as God helps, but God is my help. In fact, this variation is the one that occurs first in the canon. The original occurrence is in Genesis 15 with the character Eleazar of Damascus, and the next occurrence is in Exodus 18 with Moses' second son. Eleazar of Damascus is of particular interest because the story also includes the character Abram, who is later renamed Abraham by the scriptural God in Genesis 17. Given the innate intentionality of names in scripture and the rare occurrence in Luke, the comparison of Genesis 15 and Luke 16 becomes incredibly interesting, and may even suggest that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is making a literary allusion to Abram and Eleazar of Damascus. Now before I get into the meat and potatoes of this paper, I would like to preface that I don't want to simply make a connection for the sake of making a connection. I don't want to just stroke my intellect, and I certainly don't want to stroke everybody else's. Every study in scripture should be an, an attempt to be as faithful to scripture in its totality. This particular parable of Luke's has often been looked at historically, in the sense that many people throughout history have claimed that the parable is historical. Some have even gone as far to say that the unique naming of Eleazar 
is evidence that it is historical. The main problem with this is that it misses the literary connection with the rest of the Bible, and it is therefore super easy to miss out on its message, which is simply the inclusion of the outsider into table fellowship under the aegis of the scriptural God. In other words, to say it is something other than that is a distraction, and that is obviously incredibly dangerous. So let us continue with ears to hear what the story is telling us in its total context. So starting in Genesis 15:1 through 6, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. He said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then in Luke sixteen nineteen through 31 we have, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Having heard these passages together, let's first examine the parable of the rich man Lazarus. There are many interpretations of this story, but the one that makes the most sense contextually is that of the rich man represents the Jewish aristocracy, and Lazarus represents those outside of the seemingly pious circle, be they Gentiles or Jewish outcasts. Common arguments for this interpretation note the detail of the rich man being clothed in purple and fine linen, which brings to mind the ceremonial vestments for the Levites who have both kingship and priesthood. In other words, the rich man is representative of the religious leaders in Scripture, who are consistently failing to properly shepherd the flock, as we hear time and time again in the prophetic writings. Lazarus, on the other hand, is representative of both the Gentile community and those Jews who are considered outcasts by the Jerusalemite elite. His poverty refers to the lack of God's Torah, which the Jerusalemite elite were rich with knowledge of. He is barred from receiving this bread in full, only receiving the crumbs as he sits outside the gates. 
This is due to the gatekeeping of God's instruction by the Jerusalemite elite, which, as the context would suggest, is the main problem that the parable is speaking out against. This gatekeeping is a major concern for Paul, as is strongly evident from his epistles, and especially Galatians, where it is most clearly spelled out and explained. Thus, properly understanding this issue in the Pauline corpus is of critical importance towards approaching any New Testament text. Since most scholars are virtually unanimous that the Pauline letters predated those of the Gospel writings, there is no need to spend too much time on that point. What is less unanimous, but more relevant to this paper, is how the author of Luke-Acts incorporates the Pauline literature in these two narratives. The most striking feature of Luke's corpus is that he alone actually composes a direct narrative of Paul's life and ministry, mirroring that of his portrayal of Jesus' life and ministry. None of the other gospel writers mention Paul in their work directly, although several scholars have pointed out many instances where the evangelists have perhaps alluded to Paul in their writings. Nevertheless, the fact that the gospel accounts reflect the teaching of Paul's epistles is self-evident, and furthermore, the choice of Luke to continue the story of his gospel narrative with that of Paul's career should demonstrate an even more overt preoccupation with Paul and his conflict with the circumcision party. As the previous sentence would suggest, the precise role of the covenant of circumcision as it relates to the outsider, was the main cause of this conflict. This is, again, most concisely expounded upon in Galatians, where Paul explains that it is obedience to God and his law that determines a child of Abraham and not circumcision of the flesh. In fact, this obedience to God is dubbed circumcision of the heart in the book of Deuteronomy, and then picked up in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then finally by Paul. Therefore, Paul argues from Scripture that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value if one's heart is not circumcised. While Paul is obviously drawing from Deuteronomy and the prophets for this understanding, the basis of his entire argument regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles actually goes back to the book of Genesis, specifically that aforementioned content of chapters 15 through 17. Thus, it is really apparent that Genesis 15 through 17 is essentially the source text of everything Pauline, and thus everything New Testament, so it's a big deal. So what happens in these foundational chapters? Most notable, which are all featured prominently in Galatians, and critical to its message, are as follows. Abram's faith counted as righteousness, the promise of progeny for Abraham, the saga of Hagar and Ishmael, the renaming of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, the imposition of the covenant of circumcision, and the announcement of Isaac's birth. Thus, the immediate takeaway from this section of Genesis is that Abram's trust and obedience, or his faith, towards God's instruction is what made him righteous before the covenant of circumcision or the Mosaic law were introduced, that Abram's progeny is to extend to a multitude of nations, that Hagar, an outsider, is mistreated by Sarai the Hebrew, and Ishmael is born according to the flesh and not God's promise. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, signifying the fatherhood of many nations, i.e. both Jew and Gentile. The covenant of circumcision is enacted to display God's complete control over progeny, and Isaac is born according to the promise without Abraham's involvement. Even a cursory reading of Galatians would demonstrate that this is all essentially Pauline and at the forefront of his entire ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Moving back to the section in Genesis, the first important observation to make is that of the name Eleazar. It is particular that the author is even laboring to give this character a name, as merely stating that he was a foreign servant of Abram would have sufficed. The naming of Eleazar, thus, appears to be intentional. With Eleazar meaning my God is help, it is rather odd to the ears that Abram is outright rejecting God's help. When we look at the context of the overall narrative of Genesis 15 through 17, this inclusion of Eleazar makes sense. Abram's impatience and distrust in God's promise to give him progeny is what propels him first to reject the outsider Eleazar and then to take matters into his own hands with the conception of Ishmael through Hagar. Abram wants his own progeny. He wants his seed to continue, which is why he is uncomfortable with his outsider servant to have a share in his inheritance. There is already a built-in tension with this in the text, because in chapter 17, Abram's name is changed to Abraham because God is declaring that he will be the father of many nations. This opens up his progeny to a much larger volume than he anticipated, and would undoubtedly open up to the likes of Eleazar. This name change occurs in conjunction with the covenant of circumcision, which, given this interpretation, can mean little else other than the mark of total submission to God, particularly with that of the function as patriarch. The cutting of the male sexual organ is the graphic image of this submission. So if the naming of Eleazar in Genesis is peculiar, it is astronomically more peculiar that Lazarus is named in that parable. The parable could function, again, perfectly well, as to just leave it as the poor man and the rich man. The text has a different agenda, though. Given the common interpretation presented previously, the parallel between these two passages are quite striking. For one, the rich man in the parable is functioning very much like Abram in the Genesis text. Both figures are rich and lived lofty lives. The name Abram in Hebrew means lofty father. And at several points in his life as Abram, his wealth is consistently mentioned. Eleazar is similar to Lazarus, not merely in name, but in their functions in two respective stories. Eleazar in Genesis is awaiting Abraham's inheritance, and Lazarus in Luke is awaiting the scraps from the rich man's table. The rich man also treats Lazarus as if he is a servant when he demands that Abraham send him over to himself in order to relieve his torment in Hades. It is also important to note that Lazarus is literally thrown or cast at the gate of the rich man. The Greek has evevlito, which is from the Greek verb valo, meaning to throw. Here it is in the pluperfect passive, which, for my fellow grammatically challenged friends, basically means a completed action in the past happening to Lazarus. Thus the translation that he had been cast there is present. This is significant because Lazarus is essentially dumped in the rich man's domain, so the rich man has no excuse to not aid Lazarus. Lazarus is also seemingly forced to be there. Likewise, Eleazar of Damascus being a servant is forced in his role as Abram's servant. This comparison makes sense with Abram's narrative in the book of Genesis. And so firstly, we have Abram's struggle with the outsider and progeny throughout Genesis 15 through 17, including the story of Hagar and his son Ishmael. And there's Abram's monumental name change to Abraham in Genesis 17. And then um, it's also important to note that Abram and Abraham are essentially different characters. 
because when we change the name of a character in the Bible, uh, we are changing their function. This is why um, that Abraham is a separate character from the rich man. If the rich man is a stand-in for Abram, then Abraham is his own character. Um, It's like Star Wars. We have Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker. Those are both technically the same character in the sense that Anakin becomes Darth Vader, but we never use them interchangeably. You know, we never see Darth Vader in the costume and say that's Anakin Skywalker and vice versa. So the tra- the so the same is true for Abram and Abraham. And then we have again that important moment in Genesis where Abraham is presented as the father of many nations, Ab Hamon Goim. And um, again, that's that's important for a variety of reasons because that allows the Eleazar figure, the Lazarus figure, to be in his bosom in the first place. So when we have all that in place, then we have to ask ourselves what the reason is that Luke added this in his gospel. I think the main thing is that it's echoing Paul's allegiance to the Evangelion, to Christu, over and above all traditions of men, including and especially the traditions of our forefathers. And then it's also there to dismantle the Judahite misreading of Genesis that Abram is the hero of the story. He's not, right? And the big narrative with the Judahites is that they used their descent from Abraham as essentially their their flag, their banner. And the covenant of circumcision then became their their uh their mark of of uh of fellowship in that sense. But none of that is true, right? It's the obedience to God's Torah and it's open to all people, whether they're a descendant of Abraham or not. And thus I think another reason why Luke is presenting this in here, is that if you're not open to the outsider, then you're in danger of committing the unforgivable sin, which is the wholesale refusal of Christ's mission to call it evil, to call it from Beelzebub, which is predicated, once again, on the inclusion of the outsider. Thank you. Street.